Hello, wonderful listeners. Creating this platform is a labor of love influenced by my journey with stage three melanoma, which I was able to discover ways to improve my physical, mental, and spiritual health. Through this chapter, discovering a purpose to help individuals in a more direct way. By donating to Patreon, you're helping Wellness by Design Group to produce quality content, bring exciting guests, and improve the show. Your donations and contributions ensure that Wellness by Design Group can keep informative episodes coming and maintain a high standard we all love. We are all grateful for any and all that you do to help. Thank you. Welcome, friends, family, and guests to the Wellness by Design Group podcast. I'm your host, Rob Moffat. Wellness by Design Group would like to thank and welcome today, Miriam Javenbach. Miriam is a practicing physician therapist, physical therapist since 2005. She worked at Cedar sinai Medical Center for 10 years in the outpatient orthopedic department, where she completed the orthopedic residency program and started the oncology rehab exercise program. Miriam received an orthopedic specialist certification in 2010. Miriam is a therapeutic pain specialist and recently completed her fellowship in pain science through Evidence in Motion. Welcome, Miriam. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. We've worked together for almost two years now. I know, I can't believe it. It's been a, it's been a journey for sure. And I'm just so grateful to have you today and I'm grateful to share all this information with our audience. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I think it's, you know, you had talked about this when you were getting it ready, and so it's um, a big deal to be here now. Yeah, it's definitely. So today we're going to talk about something that is um, pretty exciting, actually. I, I have learned a lot over time, and you shared some more information. So we're going to talk about pain neuroscience education, or as other like, others like to call it, PNE. Yeah. And so with that, let's start a little bit of conversation today about, again, if you can just explain what PNE is and how it differs from traditional pain management and approaches. Sure. So pain neuroscience education is exactly kind of what it says. It's the educating patients and the community about pain, how pain naturally works in the body, and then when it gets a little overprotective, right? And so it's, it is part of the overall umbrella of how we help patients manage or treat their pain, right? So it goes hand in hand with uh, maybe a pain management physician's work, right? With medication or injections or with an orthopedic physical therapist, with movement, um, perhaps with acupuncture or with surgery. So it's, it's part of the overall system. Yeah. And then just real quick, let's go back one more step is Mm -hmm. how did you become interested in this? Oh, okay. So like you said, I was an orthopedic PT for many years and I really enjoyed doing doing that. I did that and um, oncology rehab. And then I started kind of getting into more um, manual treatments, really around um, calming down the nervous system and trying to get the body balanced. As I started doing that, I was like, we're missing something, right? Mm -hmm. We're, We're doing all this great work, but patients 
need to understand what's happening, right? Oftentimes what was happening where patients were like, why is my pain getting worse? Or why is my pain spreading? Right? How long is this thing going to take to heal? And that was causing a lot of what we call fear avoidance or catastrophization. Mm -hmm. And so PE or pain neuroscience education really comes along and starts kind of answering those questions for patients. Right? Those are the things people want to know. What is wrong with me? What's going on? How long will it last? What can you do for me? And what can I do for myself? And that's what PE is trying to answer for people. When they have those answers, the system goes, okay, I got a plan. I got an idea. I understand what's going on. Everything is a little less scary. And what we do is we use an approach. In the past, when someone had pain, and in many ways we still do this in, in the overall medical field, we use a, a biomedical approach. This is, oh, I have pain. Find the culprit, fix it, and then move on. Great. That works when we have a very clear-cut tissue injury. We can find it, take it out, boom. Does not work in all cases. And it does not always work with chronic pain because we don't have a one spot for pain. It affects the whole system. And so now what we do is we use um, the biopsychosocial approach to pain. Right, so we're looking at the biology, which just means what what tissues are involved. Okay. Is it the nerve? Is it the muscle? Is it the tendon? Mm-hmm. What is the psychology? Where is the post- person emotionally at? Mm-hmm. Right. Think about when you're feeling good. It's a sunny day. Life is happy. Right. You bump yourself. You probably won't even notice. Right. It's that same bump if it comes when. You just got in a fight with someone, you haven't slept, you're stressed out, that bump can feel real different, right? And so that's the psychological component. This last part is really interesting. It's the social component. Mm. We do not think about this often enough. When we have pain, it not only affects ourselves in relation to me, but it affects our general relationship to others. Whether that's our loved ones, our spouses, our children, our coworkers, our um, caregivers, right? Like, mm-hmm. or physicians, sure. PTs, whatever. It affects the way that we view the world. In a way, the world becomes a lot more scary, right? You so, avoid it then. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so you keep taking parts away. Oh, you know what? I can't go to dinner with you. It hurts too much to sit. I'm going to isolate that part. You know what? I can't go to church right. because I, I, I just can't be around all those people, right. right? And you just make your world more and more smaller. Yeah. And and your tolerance goes down even more. And then that plays into the probably into the the mindset too, completely because you're you're banding, you know, all that social activity. Absolutely, absolutely. So now we look at pain from this biopsychosocial perspective, which is a much more rich mm. way to look at it, right? It, so, it shows the complexities more. And what I understand too, it, it, this pain that you're discussing is, is again, it's a pain over a prolonged period. Sure. So let's define chronic pain. Okay. Yeah. Chronic pain is any pain that lasts over six months. Okay. So you and I probably have some level of chronic pain, right? We've yep. got like an old back injury that likes to pop up on us or an old knee injury that kind of says hello when it's a cloudy day. 
that is, yes, that's chronic pain. But for our purposes, if we kind of give pain into these three buckets, okay? The first bucket is what we think of as a tissue injury, right? We're going to call it nociceptive pain, but tissue injury. So like a cut. A cut or a ligament tear, right? Like you tear your ACL or you impinge your shoulder. Okay. You have a headache, okay? The next one is going to be based on the nerves, okay? So you've done something to irritate or compress or damage the nerve. Peripheral neurogenic, is that's what it's called. The third group is you might have started off in one of these two first groups, but now this pain is affecting your whole nervous system. The nervous system is starting to kind of become more sensitive. And so maybe that initial injury that you had to your tissues has healed because tissues heal, but that pain is still there. And you go to the doctor and they do imaging and they're like, no, look, it's healed. It looks good. You're fine. But you're like, I don't feel fine. I still have a ton of pain. Right. That can be from now the nervous system has decided, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to make this thing more sensitive. I'm going to make the whole nervous system. And there's a lot of things, a lot of physiologic changes that occur to make that happen. And that's plastic pain. Let's help others understand what that means as a, as, a, as a system. What does that look like? What are the things that come into that neurosystem? What are those that sure. make up that? So your nervous system is your brain, your spinal cord, and all the nerves, you know, the, I forget, the miles and miles of nerves that we have in our body, okay? And so that becomes sensitive, It becomes quick to react. It becomes quick to send us. And we'll talk about this. Like, Mm -hmm. what does pain mean, right? right? And so it starts sending us all this information to really want to take care of us. But sometimes it can get overprotective. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and oversensitive, like you said. And then you're you're feeling things that you normally wouldn't feel. Yes. And the durations that you would not probably feel, too. Yeah. So... Not everybody, kind of going back, not everybody that has pain that that um, stays or prolonged kind of comes and goes is in that third group, mm. right? Some of us, we just have pain that comes and then it goes again and it really isn't limiting our life too much, right? Maybe we go get a massage, maybe we go for a nice walk or do some stretches and it feels better. That's not this pain. This pain is really the pain that's kind of stopping our life, right. or it's making it much, much more challenging. So what's the most common misperceptions or myth about pain that you frequently encounter? Okay, well, I'm going to ask you. Okay. Okay. Do you think that pain is an input going to the brain? So let's give an example, like you sprain your ankle. Do you think that is a message from your ankle to your brain? Or do you think that pain is an output of the brain? Why well, the common answer would be the it's from my ankle. Uh-huh. But I believe it's the output from my brain. Yes. And I think that's just because I've been in this learning so much over time. And I realize, well, it goes back to what I've talked about a couple of times is when we hurt something physically, like I, I remember one time my wrist was really bothering me and it came down to, it wasn't 
the pain wasn't focused from my wrist. It was coming from my shoulder and my hip. And I, so that's why when you said that, I was like, there's, it's not coming from my ankle. Yeah. And so that, again, that's why. Good answer. You're right. So the misconception is that when we have pain somewhere, that there's damage within that specific spot. Okay. Okay. What the message of pain actually is, okay, it's a noxious stimulus, which just means it's a danger message going from that tissue up to the brain, right? It goes up the peripheral nerve, so the nerves that are outside of the spinal cord. It gets into the spinal cord. There's a little gatekeeper there. The gatekeeper goes, oh, you're bringing in a danger message? Please come on in, okay? We won't even get to, like, there's a lot of stuff that gatekeeper does to protect us, but whenever there's a danger message, it's like, you're super important. Come on up. So it goes into the spinal cord, Spinal cord already starts reacting. Then it takes that message up to the brain. The brain takes that message from its gatekeeper, the thalamus, and starts spreading it out to nine different sections of the brain. They start all working together. Okay, Those nine different areas of the brain that light up when we have any kind of pain, they're now influenced by our other factors. So quality of our sleep our past memories, our beliefs on, on healing and pain and recovery and all of it, our emotional state, right? All these things start to contribute and they come together in this kind of like brain soup, if you will. And then the output, the brain goes, ah, this is pain. Okay, now we're going to do a whole cascade of stuff to happen to protect us, right? So in the instance, like let's say, you're about to touch fire, right? That's the perfect example, right? Oh, the brain goes, wait, wait, wait. That is danger. That is painful. That heat is burning my skin. Because you know. Well, even before you touch it, you know. Right. Right. So you're like, ah, okay, brain goes, pain, stop what you're doing, mm-hmm. right? Pain is that alarm system. It's saying, whatever thing you're doing, stop it. And so that's the output of the brain. The other big Which we need in some level oh, to protect ourselves. People who don't have yeah. pain awareness, they oftentimes really hurt themselves and tend to unfortunately die younger. Mm. Right? If you don't feel that your hand is touching a hot stove, you're just gonna have your hand there. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's one big misconception. The other one, the one that I'm always trying to tell people patients, clinicians, anyone I can talk to, is that all pain is real. Unfortunately, when we talk about things, it's getting better, but still, we talk about diagnoses of like fibromyalgia is a perfect one, right? right? And I feel like that has become so much more common in the world. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it. I know so many people that are dealing with that. Yeah. Is it, have we gotten better at diagnosing it? Or uh, is it, you know what I mean? Because in the past, we would just kind of blow it off and be like, oh, that's made up. No. Pain, whether it's from a tissue source or from a psychological source, is still pain. It's still a true perception. It's like, 
right now it's Halloween time, right? <clears throat> People are going to haunted houses. They know that that zombie or ghost isn't real. But in that split second, does the body and the mind feel like it's real? Yes. Yeah. It's, it, you're getting the same you know, visceral reaction. And so it's the same thing. That cause of pain can be from a, a tissue injury, but can also be from a nervous system that's oversensitive or from emotional pain. And one isn't more important than the other. They're all affecting the brain, and the same areas of the brain are lighting up. Right. Right? And so this is super important because people feel a lot of shame around pain. Absolutely. They do. I mean, I've witnessed it with myself. And you have that place where you don't feel like you can do your normal activities. Um, If you're providing for your family and you're not able to do that. There's simple chores around the house because of, because of. So it then, as you said, it starts to have a psychological effect on the individual. Mm-hmm. It really does trigger on a very primal level our fear, right? Our fears of like not providing, of being shunned from the community, being left behind. And now put that on top of something that maybe isn't you know, a very visible injury, right? People talk a lot about invisible pain or invisible illness or diagnosis. That adds another layer to it. Yeah, it's, I don't know about invisible, but the reason you and I were connected originally was because I've had this condition in my, I'll call it my sinus for lack of a better word, and it's pulling on my instation tubes in my ears for I think it's been four years now, and still dealing with it. Um, I feel it's gotten better over time. It's loosened up with a lot of therapy, and it affects me daily because it's where it's located. Mm-hmm. If it, I believe, if it was in my foot or something, even Tara and I've talked about this because it's in my brain, like near my brain and my head, it is so visible to me every minute of the day. But I've learned to not, over time, you know, there was a period of, what is this? Still is. Super scary. And not knowing what it is, going to, you know, ENTs twice and getting scans and, you know, here, take this, take that, and nothing did anything. And they couldn't tell me what it was. And I remember even getting a, a root canal I've never been so excited about going to the dentist because I thought that root canal was the cause of it. Right. You know, I thought, okay, this is it. Just because of where it's located and how, you know, I Makes felt sense. like they were all connected. And they still might be. But again, over time, it, even though it's still there, the way it affects me on a daily basis has changed for the better. I think it has to do with a lot of other variables. Um, working with people like you and Tara and other individuals. I think also, to be honest with you, going through another diagnosis of, and then it was cancer mm-hmm. and having something, you know, I don't know if it's say more serious because I don't know what it is, but again, that was more important. The other stuff kind of fell off. And then going through that and being able to get to the other side, again, gives you confidence. And I think that's the other thing too, is just helping people understand 
that as you go through these things and learn about things, learn new tools, new protocols, and you get some level of whether it's relief or progression in a, in a positive way, it gives us all hope. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing is we're just, we're wanting to give people hope that there's things out there. I know there's people suffering with pain all over, all over the world. And our friends, mm-hmm. and we talk to our friends, they have this, they have that. And, you know, and I have friends that have pain all over and I feel for them. I want to give them relief. I want to give them hope because yeah. I believe there is. hundred percent there is. Yeah. I'll, I'll kind of let you know how I think of hope. Um, so I always say that pain doesn't just poof one day come on, right? It is especially chronic pain that's, that's more debilitating. It comes with multiple factors, right? Different things happen, biopsychosocial. That same change that's occurring that's kind of bringing us to it is the same change that will take us out of it, mm. right? There is a lack of permanence, for good or bad, in whatever state we're in. There's always room for improvement. There's always room for change. So even in the past, we used to think someone who had a stroke would have about a year to make gains. Mm, okay. Now we don't believe that anymore. We think that change is always possible. Right? It might look a little bit different. It might be a little bit slower, but it's still able to change. So with a stroke and say, I mean, I, they lose use of parts of their body. Mm-hmm. So you're saying you believe now with what's being said out there in the data that people over time could maybe get that back, some level of yeah, that back. Yeah, absolutely. That, that we're not stuck to that one-year mark. Well, we got you as far as we could. We're done. There you go. Go on home. Mm-mm. No, no see plastic change, right? Like we can evolve. Our brains are always moving and changing and growing and new connections are being made. And if one part is damaged, brain's beautiful, right? It goes, well, let me figure out another way to get that information. Mm-hmm. And that is really hope producing for me. Yeah, and I think just having that ability to realize there's all these things out there that can provide that change. Yes. And I, th- for me, again, going through a diagnosis of cancer, I was given, dealt that card, and because of that card, I seeked anything I could mm-hmm. to learn about how to deal with what I was going to deal with immediately and then all the other factors around it, the side effects and go on and on. And that gave me an education and also tools to work through those. And I have tools now that I believe that will help me with any level of pain. Yeah, you know? yeah, they will. And I think that's important too, is that and they don't all work. We have to, you know, try things mm-hmm. and realize, okay, is that is that a positive thing for me? What do I gain from it? And then also understand that sometimes we have to whatever that tool or that practice we're trying to learn and work on to help with pain or whatever working on wellness and health and healing is that it takes time too. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, as as society, we all know we're all wanting the instant gratification. And because of that, I believe that's why the majority of people want to go to a doctor and receive medication. 
Yeah, and, oftentimes it's cheaper and faster. Yeah, we rather just sit on our couch and put a pill in our mouth and let that do the work if it's going to do anything other than just cover it up. But the true really reality is we need to put the work in mm-hmm. as an individual. And that looks different for everybody. 100%, yeah. You know, and it has to do with their abilities, both mentally and physically. And financially. So, and financially, absolutely. Mm. But I think it starts to what you were saying earlier is there's a mental block that happens potentially. And if our mental state is, in, is off, it throws everything off. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's a really accurate way of saying it. And I think you are actually the perfect example. I, I always tell my patients, like, P&E isn't the end-all be-all, right? Just like surgery isn't the end-all. Now, if you need surgery, by all means, you need to get that, Absolutely. right? If there's instability, you need to fix that. Mm-hmm. If there is cancer, you need to do the treatments for it, right? But the way I look at it is like everything gives you a little bit percentage, right? Maybe learning improves it 5%. Doing surgery improves it 20%. Acupuncture improves it another 5%. And so you're doing these small percentage change to kind of create a bigger change. And now you're at like 75 based on all these things that you're doing. Like you said, not everything works for everybody. But what we do know is that the more knowledge and awareness you have, the better off you are. Knowledge is never a bad thing, right? Well, I, I read something earlier. It says, learn about pain. And if you learn about pain, it equals, it means your life improves because you have a better understanding. And I, and I, I think that's correct. I don't think I know it's correct. And then with that, your fears go away mm-hmm. they're less you still might have some fear but it's definitely going to be less and then your anxiety so then again with knowledge then maybe it minimizes the mental challenges and then allows it to you know work through uh you know it gets rid of that roadblock mm-hmm. in peony we talk about there's many ways that you can do the education and various things but our four kind of real basic pillars are knowledge right gaining knowledge Um, sleep hygiene. So whenever someone comes to see me, the first thing I ask about and the thing we try to tackle first is sleep, right? Whether that means working with your physician or getting acupuncture, learning sleep hygiene, there's all kinds of stuff that can be done. How many of your patients that you work with, you feel are challenged with sleep, getting good sleep? Like over 90. Wow. Yeah. It's the, it's like one of the first things to be affected. Are they, when you bring it up, is it something that they're knowledgeable of and understand, or it's like they've never heard anything about the value of sleep before? Um, They understand that they're not getting quality sleep, but they don't know how to change that. Is that something you work with them on? Yeah, so that's some of the work that I'll do, and um, also providing resources and saying, hey, sometimes, you know, you need to go and maybe you need to get a sleep test, right? Whether that's the at-home version or in the clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, now there's like sleep coaches. There's, there's a mm-hmm. lot out there that can help with sleep. And sleep now, talking about percentages, 
even sleep hygiene stuff goes into percentages, right? Where we're saying like, maybe it's learning about sleep, right? How to improve it. Maybe it is maybe taking some kind of supplementation or something to support the system or, you know, getting um, tools or apps. And each one of these is going to add that little bit percentage to overall give you that quality sleep. What I've learned about sleep, a couple of things. One is it's really important to be consistent when we go to sleep. Mm, very. Because if you're going off you know, various directions with that, that's going to affect everything. And so what I understand is that you go to bed at, say, 9.30 every night, you have a half an hour window both ways that you can go to bed and still get that. But if you went to bed normally at 9.30 and then went to bed at 10.30, that first 60 minutes of REM sleep is so important, you missed it. It doesn't just start at 10. Mm-hmm. It just, you leaped over it yeah. completely. And the other thing I feel with sleep is having a routine. Getting to yourself get, ready. To get ready to yeah. sleep. And I think there's various tools to that. I actually look forward to my routine every it's night. It's the wind down. We do, it, we do it when we have babies. Mm-hmm. Right, we have the wind down with the baby. They take a bath. Maybe you read a book. Right, the lights are low, but we don't do that for ourselves. We like blast the light, blast the TV, right. and then we're like, "Time to go to bed." Right? No, we. It's about getting the house ready, getting yourself ready. Yeah, there's a lot that can be done for sleep. The last pillar, kind of going back to it, is goal setting. Right. Okay, this is really important. So when we have pain. So someone will come into my clinic and say, I have pain. And they will paint the most kind of detailed picture of their pain. They will give me a thousand words for their pain. We do treatment, we work, whatever, go kind of the next visit or whenever. How's your pain? It's fine. What? Like this thing took over your life, right? And that thousand words turn into like, it's fine. We because and not that they're trying to be flippant. It's just like pain is not baseline. We should not have pain. So my whole focus, right? And there's a lot of physiologic changes that happen. Are we get a reduction in serotonin and dopamine when we have pain because the brain does not want you to notice the sunshine and the butterflies. It wants you to focus on this pain because there is danger and you need to figure it out, mm-hmm. right? Right. So. When that pain goes away, you come back to your equilibrium point. You come back to baseline. No pain is baseline. Okay. So why am I going to get like super excited about just being at baseline? Okay, I'm here. This is what's expected. I have like, you know, 40 other things to worry about now. I'm going to worry about those things. And that pain is not felt. So goal setting, what it does is really gets you to kind of stop in the present moment and go, oh, I did worry a lot about that. And now, yeah, it's been a couple days that I haven't thought about it. Cool, that's change, right? Mm, And and every time that we are able to recognize small and big changes, the brain is always wanting to do its best for you, right? So then the brain goes, oh, you like that? that? That's what you want? You want more of that? Okay, thanks for letting me know, right? People talk about like, positive intentions or manifestations, what are they saying? They're feeding the brain specifically what they want. And the brain goes, oh, okay, yeah, let's do this, right? So 
That's why goal setting is so important. So can you give me an example of what that goal might look like or what the goals that you work with patients on? Sure. So one of my favorite things to do is to set really small attainable goals, right? You've heard of like doing checklists and then like marking it off and getting that little dopamine hit. So you can do something as simple as that. There was a wonderful TED talk and I don't remember his name, but it was about kind of connecting. If you want to make a habit change, connecting that thing to something that you're already doing. I will, I'll send you, I'll send you the link mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm. podcast. It was a Stanford professor. Okay. I'm so bad with names. Anyway, so he was saying like, if your goal is to get stronger in doing push-ups, did you see this? He was mm-hmm. like, okay, every time I go to use the bathroom, I will do two push-ups. Okay. Okay. And eventually that's like, you know, 50 something push-ups. Every time you hit those two push-ups, that's a little pot, and you stop for that brief second and you recognize it. That is a little dopamine hit. Man, I am hitting these goals daily, right? So, for instance, one of my patients, I will give um, instead of standing up and walking, you stand up and sit down twice and then you start walking. Okay, so think about how many times you stand up and sit down a day, right? A lot. Yeah. A lot. So now you've turned that into a functional squat. And you instead of doing it, let's say, I don't know, 15, 20 times, you've done it now 40 times. That's exciting, right? And it's like, oh, I did this, and now I can change it. I can modify it, right? A big part of it is pacing. One of the things that I find people do, especially in chronic pain, is they'll feel a little bit better, and we call it the boom-bust cycle. Okay. I'm going to like, I'm feeling good. I'm going to go do my laundry and I'm going to go grocery shopping and then I'm going to do this thing and then I'm going to crash. And that crash might last a few days. And then you go, well, no, no, I'm not going to do those things. Those caused me to really have pain. They're dangerous, not doing that. Instead of going, I feel good today. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go grocery shopping and then I'm going to come home and I'm going to make sure I get a little treat for myself, a little snack to just eat so I can rest. And I'm going to pace myself and maybe I'm going to make a lighter dinner. And then tomorrow, if I'm a little sore, that's okay because it's not a big sore. It's just a little bit and I can do that. So pacing is vital and it's harder than it seems, right? And it takes practice to figure that out. There's going to be ebbs and flows to it absolutely yeah you know and um the dopamine hit of, of finding those successes i think are big and especially when it's a positive oh, there's, there's moment huge. you know and you brought the push-ups and you know i've actually through my journey and, and getting more into exercise and being more f- physical and then also having the opportunity to be more intensified with my physical activity which again is something I wasn't focused on. And as I got through treatments and got more energy, you know, I lost a lot of weight, so that gave me even more energy. You know, I'm doing push-ups twice a day. Nice. Perfect. So I'm doing it when I wake up and before I go to bed. So before I, you know, I've set goals in myself is before you leave, before you go anywhere, do anything for the day, you gotta do your push-ups. And then before you go to bed. And, you know, I even told my son, I'm doing this, you gotta hold me accountable. Mm-hmm. And so, I, and again, it gives me that dopamine hit, like you said. 
and you feel like you accomplished something. And I have a goal with that. And I know doing this consistently is going to get me to that goal. And it's, what, 20 seconds, 30 seconds a day? Yeah. It's your little goals moving towards Absolutely. that big goal. The, the, and you kind of brought up another thing. The last, last kind of pillar was movement. Right. Right? When we have pain, we think we're going to stop what we're doing. And that's not going to work. It just makes your world bubble smaller and your tolerance less. Right? Let's say you have back pain. Just go for a little walk, not a big walk. We're talking about pacing. Five minutes, get that blood flow. Your nerves love movement, blood flow, space. And that's what kind of allowing your body to move, to stretch, to breathe, right? Breathing to me is also like just conscious, present moment breathing is a movement. You're using your diaphragm, you're getting like, Lungs opening and closing, your rib cage moving. Well, you have to think. Too. Yes. So it's not a subconscious movement. Yeah. It is the bridge. Right. It's, it's really powerful. Yeah. Is there a, we'd say the word pain, mm-hmm. and that is a big word. It, it goes across very various landscapes. Can we talk a little bit of, of, again, defining what pain is and what that means? Is it something physical only? There's also the mental side of things, the psychological side of things, which you brought up. You know, all those things can they play into it. Mm-hmm. But again, is it something that I'm always gonna? You know, you brought up too that people have pains that I don't want to say they made up, but they've described, and there's no way to, to point where it is. Right. So, just pain as like a it is. Your system feeling dis-ease, right? Like it feels uncomfortable. The source of that can be from the tissues or from a psychological, emotional state, right? But what that causes is still the same. The actual mechanisms that it can cause, that pain that we talk about, is still the same. It's just that the source of it is coming from a different source. And unfortunately, we do not seem to value that pain in the same way if we don't have a tissue source involved. Okay. Right? But the the nervous system is reacting in the exact same way. Right? We have a stress axis that's activated. Right? It's going to let out stress hormones, right? Cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine. Mm-hmm. Right. Does not matter if it's coming from, you know, my wrist, like a tendon in my wrist, or if it's coming from a mental source or a nervous system source, right? From the nervous system being sensitive. Yeah. Right? The immune system. So when we have a pain response, we have, it's called the neuroimmune endocrine system. Right. All three of these start getting activated. Our nervous system, our immune system, we start sending out white lymphocytes, we start sending out 
an immune response, an inflammatory response. So then, that could, so then it also could affect you know um, illnesses in yeah. some way. Yeah, because it's weakening that system. Absolutely. And so, sending, I mean, is it sending false signals too? It can be. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing it can be doing is adding to the pain, right? Inflammation yeah. in and of itself causes pain. Right. So now we're kind of creating another layer, right? Another source. And, and I believe with all of that, it I can imagine, and I, you know, I've been there to some level where it piles up, and it breaks down. But it piles up on you, and you you feel like there's no way out. Yeah. You know, all this pain, all this hurt, this sickness. You know, I'm dealing with this, I'm dealing with that, and I have no way out of this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the challenge for most people: is that it adds up, and then they feel like there's no way out. And this is the way I'm going to be for the rest. You know, it's just how it is. They just accept it. Mm -hmm. And then to that point, once they accept it, they go through a period of potentially what you're saying, where they disengage from people, so socially, Mm -hmm. and all these other things come into play. And like you said, their world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And what's happening inside them gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm just challenged by that for everybody. I, I, you know, I don't like it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And it really requires a whole team to help, right? It requires, like you, like you said, right? It requires nutrition. It requires manual work. It requires the work of physicians, right? Everybody. Uh, I mean, I would say the majority of my patients, one of the first things I ask is, do you have a mental health provider, mm-hmm. right? I also ask, what's your spiritual beliefs? Sure. Right? Because that plays a factor. Yeah. yeah. Not for everybody, but for a lot of people. Yeah. Right? And all of these little things matter and they make a change. Right? One of the other questions is like, what, are you, what do you hold dear? What are you passionate about? Is it your loved one? Is it your dog, right? Is it playing music? Whatever that is, that can be a source too of, of, of help and hope. Yeah. And again, like you said, giving people hope is key. Um, and it, we talked about a little bit, and I think this kind of plays into it too, is that how do you assess that the patients are ready and suitable for peony? Because like all of these things, and even for myself, I have to be ready. I feel willing. I was given a hand that kind of forced me to be willing and say, look, you do this now or, you know, there's going to be different consequences potentially. And so I was forced in a way that I'm grateful for. It really pushed me in a direction that I've always wanted to be and, you know, conceptualized in my head, but I didn't know how to get there. And because I went through a diagnosis of cancer Again, I was seeking everything, and again, it forced me, but but I have to be ready. Mm-hmm. And all of these things I do today, I tell people, it's not easy, but I have to be consistent with it, and I know the results. I know what the results are. I understand doing these things that are hard, what I gain. And that's because, I've again, consistency in time mm-hmm. and trial, a lot of trial. 
And that's not what people, that's hard for people to do, including myself. I'm going to try all these things and it might not work as I'm suffering. Yeah. Whether it's pain, whether whatever the suffering looks like. But I think, again, ability to try and learn and educate ourselves is key. Sure. So what I look for, first of all, I have a lot of compassion for wherever someone is in their kind of journey, right? Which is key. Yeah. I can't, I can have ideas and have the best intentions on how I want to help someone, but at the end of the day, it's, it's their process, their story, their struggle. It's, it's theirs, right? I am just this small part of it. Now, I want to help as much as I possibly can, but I know that I can't do more than they can do, right? And then there's also, you have your own limitations. And what I like about practitioners like you, you understand that, and you understand if they need something else, they need to see someone else, you're going you're gonna to help them get there. Absolutely. And I think that's the other thing that I enjoy about working with practitioners like you Again, understanding limitations, understand your lane, yeah, and realize, oh, Rob needs to be in this other lane potentially. Mm-hmm. And I know this great person. To I help know this you. great person to help you, or here, this is you know, read this, look at this. So mm-hmm. that's what I've enjoyed throughout this journey is that these, you got, the practitioners understand their lane. Yeah, because you feel confident in, in it. You know, you know your you know what you can do really well. And so I don't have to do a million things. I can do this thing really good. Right. And I can also form communities so that I can have resources for my patients. Right? Hey, I know this person, they're an amazing manual therapist or they're really great at exercise or let me send you to this acupuncturist. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a team working together. But kind of going back to the idea, what I try to do with everybody is I'm just putting the seed, right? I have this little bit of knowledge. I'm going to give you this. And you get to decide, is it time for this seed to grow right now? Or does it need to kind of just be a little more dormant for now? Right. And that's that's up to them. Right, But my goal, my personal goal, is to get that information out to everybody and let them decide what, what they're going to, if it resonates with them, if it works for them. And then through that, when you're working with a patient, what are some of the steps you go through with them? Sure. So there's kind of two components to my work, right? One of them is this education piece, and then the other part is the manual hands-on part, right? So I, like Tara, use cranial sacral um, to down-regulate the nervous system. I do various kind of manual modalities and some exercise and movement. That's one component. The other thing I do is this pain education. So I can do this one-on-one as we're working. I'm just kind of sharing information, little bits here and there, or more formally in um, a program. So I developed a course. It's a four-week course. We go over pain neuroscience education, so those little pieces of knowledge. Then we go over tools and techniques. 
how do we create a really like great goal? Or how do we, this is my favorite sheet. It's called the reboot. When you have a flare up, we know when you're in a flare up, when your pain gets really bad, your brain kind of shuts off, right? You're not thinking in that big cerebral cortex. You are like just living in that little reptilian mind. Yeah, in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a sheet where you write like, okay, so what do I do? What are the things I know that help calm me down? What movements can I do? How do I take things out so that they don't even have to think? They can just look at the sheet, right? So we do various tools and techniques. And I am a big fan of meditation, guided visualization to get the brain to kind of help along, right? About 70% of the neurons, okay, that can get activated just by thinking you're doing something versus actually doing it. So, you know, for example, you see like downhill skiers right before and they're like moving or rock climbers. They're kind of figuring out their path, right? They're visualizing it. It's that muscle memory that we're thinking about, right? It's that making it automatic. Well, we can do that too. So maybe, like here's one big thing. Let's say someone comes in and they have a lot of fear avoidance. Like I am petrified of climbing these stairs. And ortho is looked at them, right? They're orthodox, like, no, the knee looks awesome. You look really good. Imaging is great. They're going to orthopedic PT. PT is like, you got the strength to do it. You have the range of motion to do it, but there is something that's holding them back. Well, we need to make sure that they can visualize themselves doing it in their mind before they actually do it. Because if they can't see themselves, visualize themselves doing it, guess what? They're not doing it, right? Or they're going to have pain doing it. So I'll tell people, like, let's say someone has a lot of pain raising their arm. I go, okay, close your eyes. Can you see yourself doing it? And by seeing yourself, by the way, some people see themselves as like the third person. Some people see themselves like as like a first person video game, right? Can you see yourself raising your arm? Yeah, I can. How does it feel to you? Is it? They're like, well, I get a little bit nervous. Okay, so how can we change that? And we kind of play with changing those, those models. And then we start to add it into real movement. Is it hard for people to visualize that? No. Okay. Most people, in some ways... You know what I found? Even if they can't actually like see themselves, there's like a sense that they can feel themselves doing it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I can say, Rob, can you imagine right now you're putting on your socks? Right? You might not be able to see yourself, but you know what that feels like. Feels like. Right. And that's what can also come up for visualization. And then another thing that I do with patients is some patients get very sensitized, right? They're very, um, everything is painful. So you can think of the person who like, can't even tolerate like sleeves, right? Or having yeah. the wind blow on them. Right. So we could say this is like an over-sensitized system. And we start to desensitize it. And there's many ways that we can do that. We're trying to bring feedback, sensory feedback, input to the brain. And when the brain gets that, it goes, oh, okay, this thing is safe. Okay, so let me give you a little bit more tolerance. 
and uh, we use things like mirror therapy. You can you can try this at home. Put your hand, like your right hand, so you can't see your left hand. Just look at the image in the mirror of your right hand, and your brain is going to start thinking it's your left hand. Mm. Um, for anyone who wants, there's a really great study. It's called the rubber hand study, and you can look it up on YouTube. And it's a rubber hand. The person knows it's a rubber hand, but how quickly the brain starts to believe it's their hand. Wow. Right? It's it's neuroplastic change. It happens very quickly. So the opposite of what you said about being you know, hypersensitive to pain, mm-hmm. there's also people that are the other direction. Mm-hmm. They have a high tolerance of pain. Yes. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Um, and I... I'm at that other spectrum, which there's some value, but there's also some negative to that. Where, you know, I go to the doctor and said, Do you have pain? Uh, no, but I might. <laughs> yes. But I just, because I've trained over the years that pain is a mental thing, mm-hmm. that we've learned that, you know, pain is mental. And I think there's a challenge to that side of it too. Right. Well, we're saying that pain is an output of the brain, right? And if the brain is mental, there's a component of that. And that's how we can train it. That's how athletes... And so what we do know is kids that play contact sports have a different relationship towards pain because their brain has linked pain with this thing that's also highly enjoyable, right? It's like kind of like... Yeah, it's a side effect of this thing that I love doing, right? I love playing this sport and being with friends and the, the joy of the whole process. So that is linked together. And so that person is going to have a very different interpretation of pain than the person who has always viewed pain as something damaging and scary. Their link isn't there to something positive. Also true for, um, there's studies that look at children who had polio, okay? So children who had polio that they overcame also seem to have real kind of like grit and endurance and like pain tolerance because they already overcame this thing at a very young age that was really hard and challenging and painful. And now they're like, I conquered that thing, I can conquer anything right right Right. and even their relationship to pain changes and i have the firsthand experience with that with my own mom Mm. she had polio as a child she had an aunt that helped her you know recover she lived a full life everything's great as she's aged that um the motor units in that leg have weakened right but time and time again when she's had various surgery i see this woman who is able to to kind of tolerate these high levels of pain because her system believes she can, right? Another great example, I, I put this in my course, is Carrie Strug in the 1996 Olympics, right? She's doing that last vault to win gold for America. She hurts her ankle in the first vault. She gets back out there, runs full speed, right? Lands that... She, can't even tell that she's in pain the second that ankle touches or that toe touches the mat you see her fall and now you bet she's feeling that pain right Right. 
But she knows what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And she's experienced it probably before. Mm-hmm. And like you said before, I think whether it's She's here, trained it. Yeah, she, but she knows it's temporary. Mm-hmm. She understands the, the reality of it. And I think that's very important. But then there's pain that we've never experienced. I think that's the challenge for a lot of people. Um, I think athletes know it the best yeah. because of what they go through. You know, especially, you know, professional athletes and whether it's the Olympics or professional sports, they've probably been training their entire life mm-hmm. for the most part. And they've had many injuries over the years. They've recovered from those injuries. And there's probably some that they still have lingering. But they know probably. how to but physically and mentally they know how to work through it. Yeah, there's other components that are affecting it. Yeah. Right. And what there's- we said earlier is I think when it really affects them is when they they have an injury or pain that they're not able to enjoy the sport or the activity that they're used to doing. Yes. Then I think that plays into effect mentally um, tremendously to them. Big time, right? That That is something we really look at. When someone stops being able to do that thing that they love, that brought them so much passion, oftentimes you can see pain now having a different effect. Well, it's not just their passion. Some for some of them, it's how their they careers. Provide, yeah, their career, yeah. how they provide for their families uh-huh. and things like that. So that pain, whatever they're dealing with, is can you know completely remove that from their life potentially, and then they have to figure out, okay, now what? What's my new life look like? Yeah. And so mentally, that plays a big game in their head for sure. And we can go back to biopsychosocial, right? Right, And so we can see that not just for athletes, but for all of us, right? We have to look at what we're going through, not just with pain, but just like life in general from this perspective, right? That it, it's complex. With all the individuals you've worked with and just, you know, research and looking at this, is there individuals... They're better suited for PNE than others. I mean, is there something that's factual about that individual or in their DNA or their makeup that makes them more receptible to that? I would say no. Okay. I think that that PNE can benefit. So there's some people who are going to take that information and remember, kind of going back to the other stuff, their belief, their memories, their beliefs about themselves, all these things are pretty solid. So they're going to take that information. It just kind of is like more fuel to the fire that they're going to get better and they're going to move on. Now you have people, we haven't even gotten to the idea of trauma. No. <laughs> right? How does trauma affect the way we perceive pain? How does kind of disassociating from our bodies affect that way we perceive pain. All of these things start to get harder and harder. And so the the patients that I love helping, I love helping anyone, but the ones that really, I think, make such a big impact are the ones who are really struggling, right? Their pain is sky high. Their tolerance is is quite low, right? Their life is being narrowed. Um, I had a patient once and they couldn't even lie on the bed, Mm. right? So even that was too frightening for their nervous system. Wow. It would cause their muscle to twitch and fire. And so we worked 
together, right? We sat up. It was about making sure that the person felt as safe as possible in their timeline, not mine, not the insurance companies, right? right? On their timeline. We worked for a while together, and then recently I heard from them, and they sent me this amazing email about how life had slowly changed. And they said, you know, there, and again, going back to, it wasn't like P&E saved the day. It was just that one small factor on all these other things that they worked on. And they worked so hard. And, but they came back to P&E and they're like, that information that you gave me helped me along the pathway. I would go, oh yeah, I remember Miriam said that to me. Also, too, I think helping them understand and educating them also probably allows them to realize, okay, if Maryam is able to tell me these things and they're working, there might be other information out there that I can benefit from. Mm -hmm. And so then they start to seek it a little bit on their own. And they might come back to you also and say, hey, Maryam, I found this. What do you think? All the time. And I think that's a great relationship. Because they're seeking and they're bringing it back, and it might be something you haven't even that you didn't even know about yet, and you learn. So yeah. I think that's the great opportunity is that when the patients are wanting to learn themselves and become that knowledgeable about whatever that is, that they can bring something back to the practitioners. And I learned so much from my patients. <clears throat> they're living it, right? And they're gonna always be, you know that much more invested in it than I am. And so I get a wealth of information from my patients. Hey, have you checked out this book? Have you heard this podcast? Have you read this article? All so the you time. get feedback all the time. All the time. Yeah. I get like emails saying, hey, this thing was really interesting. Actually, I'm reading a book on a totally different topic that a patient sent, you know, said, mm-hmm. hey, you should check it out. Right. And then as you go through this, we discuss the ongoing research that's being going on and what do you feel over time that it's, let's say maybe the next five to 10 years, how do you see P and E changing? Great question. I don't want to lead the question because no. I have a lead, but I'm going to Oh, you answer. do? Yeah, okay. Well, well, this is what I think. This is the thing I'm really excited about. Unfortunately, we have an opioid epidemic and a pain epidemic yes. in this country and it is super serious. Yes. Right, And I'm a big believer that not just the patient that's already in severe chronic pain, right, but the patient who's starting to get a bit of pain or they're going to have surgery. I think if we can teach people this beforehand, it helps save a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of fear, right? And so... And money. And money. Yeah, yeah for sure. Right? So... My hope is that we can start to see peony. There's actually some studies that look at doing, you know, teaching peony to seventh graders. Wow, right? So as they start to kind of mature, they have an understanding of how pain works, right? So that they're not just running to pain meds, right? One of the things I get so upset about is like someone will have surgery. And I'm sure you see this too. And they'll just be prescribed like a large amount of painkillers. Yeah, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm allergic to Vicodin. Uh-huh. So, so it's been, you know, a little bit of a saving grace. 
Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I remember receiving it once. I don't even remember what. Oh, actually, I do remember. But I was itching like crazy. I was like, what is going on? And I realized it was the Vicodin. So that was probably 15, 20 years ago I realized that. And so anything I've gone through, it's like, I don't, no pain meds. Yeah. You know, maybe some you know, higher dose, you know, ibuprofen or something like that. But nothing in that other level of opioid. Let's let's give some percentages, right? This thing, when I heard this, was staggering to me. So a patient is on opioids for eight days. Okay. Mm-hmm. 13.5% of those people for those will be on it for longer than a year. Will be taking opioids for longer than a year. If someone's on opioids for more than 30 days, 30% of those people, so one in three people, will be on that opioid for longer than a year. But with that, what's what's the understanding of how they get off that opioid? I mean, that challenge, you say a year, so they have to go through withdrawal, go through some level. Uh, Yeah. You talk about pain. There's another level of pain there. Absolutely. I mean, there's real withdrawal symptoms. That requires medical supervision. And it's it's evident everybody can go online and learn about it. And so then you have the fear of getting off of it. Mm-hmm. And that probably keeps them on it longer too. Yeah. So if we can teach like, hey, here's what to expect postoperatively. And no, by all means, if you need to... And I'm not saying, like, don't take pain meds. No, take pain meds because it's important. We need you to be somewhat comfortable. But if you can tolerate a 2 out of 10 pain, then guess what? Your tissues are going to heal faster. You're going to sleep better. You're going to recover. And then you don't have to sit there and then worry about the fear of getting off this medication. And there's plenty of other things, like TENS units, right? Right. Like... um, Blockers that they now give during surgery, um, really great ice or cooling devices. The ice bath. Yeah, the ice yeah, bath. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Rob, I know you love that. Yeah. So there's plenty of other stuff that can acupuncture. Ac- exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I'm really hoping that this education becomes kind of a part of our culture and a part of. You know, just like we all learn that we have to wear seatbelts. Like it is, you know, like smoking is bad for us, right? A lot less people smoke. I hope that pain education becomes part of the cultural vernacular. How do people learn about this? I mean, where do they seek this? I mean, obviously you've trained in it, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's listeners all over the country. Where do, how do they seek this information? How do they seek practitioners that are working through this? So... Like many things I'll say, YouTube is a great resource. Mm -hmm. Put in pain neuroscience education. There's a lot of good information there, right? There are um, various programs out there that are talking about it. Um, My program, Mosaic of Healing, Mm -hmm. it's the four-week program. Mm -hmm. But maybe that doesn't work for you. Get out there and find different resources. Evidence in Motion has a ton of great free resources. Um, Ask your PTs, you know, say, hey, do you guys know about pain neuroscience education? Can you tell me about it? Uh, There's, there's way to get information. Yeah. And then can you, 
you, you brought up movement is a big component of mm-hmm. this too. Mm-hmm. And I obviously it, it varies between patient, what yeah. that movement looks like. But can we give an idea of what, you know, from, you brought up the person that just sits up and down, mm-hmm. you know that. But what's another level of movement, maybe the other end of the spectrum? Is it just, you know, is it running? What what Or is it very dependent on the individual? Oh, I mean, I think it really depends on the person, right? So I have a patient who came in um, who uh, is a horseback rider and um, injured her ankle. And she requires a totally different kind of progression, right? Because she's not only kind of working on that whole chain from the ankle to the hip to the back, but she's also worried about very micro movements in the ankle, right? Because that's how she communicates to the horse, these little tiny things. So we kind of have to look at it differently for someone like her than the every other person. I, I tend to not be in favor of protocols, right? Even when it's something like a total knee replacement. Oftentimes, doctors will have these like rehab protocols that they like, or the PTs will have it. And for the most case, sure, we know what we need to strengthen, what we need to loosen and stuff. But then the next level is taking that and saying, what does the patient functionally need? What does their life look like? Because guess what? A marathon runner is going to have totally different needs than the more sedentary, you know, grandmother who just needs to maybe get down on the ground to play with their grandchild. And so that's where a skilled therapist comes in and says, okay, we know what the general body needs, but what do you need in your life? Again, biopsychosocial. What is the thing that's going to make the biggest effect for you? So that kind of goes into is in how do we collaborate with healthcare providers and multidisciplinary approaches to get this into what I consider Western practices? Yeah, I think patients have a pivotal role. Guess what? Your healthcare providers, your physicians, your PTs will listen to you, right? So when you go and go, hey, do you have resources for me to learn more about pain, pain neuroscience education? Because I've heard it makes a big difference in my overall recovery. If people start asking, they'll start paying attention, Mm -hmm. right? Unfortunately, there's times where I'll go and talk to PT clinics and they'll go, oh, that's really interesting, but we don't have the time to do that. Or our patients aren't interested. And I don't think that's true. I think patients want knowledge. They want to know what's going on with their bodies. And so you guys have a right to ask. Right. Yeah. Well, I've learned a lot. Good. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should in regards to PNE? Not really. I think we've gone over all the big stuff and... Um, You know, I say just be curious and be hopeful because there's a lot of resources out there. And I want to say I'm really proud of you. Thank you. Because you are bringing this information to people in a way that they might not have heard before or wouldn't have heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Well, I appreciate it. And I think for me, the reason why I feel so passionate about doing it is because working with individuals like you. And all the other individuals I work with, it's I, I want to get on the mountaintop and shout about it because 
there's some really good individuals out there that really want to help people heal. Mm-hmm. Not put a Band-Aid over it, but truly heal. And healing, I think, for me is, like we've been talking about all this stuff, is it's the entire body. It's our mind, it's our soul, and it's our physical body. Mm-hmm. And those are three things that we need to work together with to heal in whatever the fashion that looks like. I think it's really important. The one thing, too, I just want to bring up is that, you know, as we've been talking about this, we've been talking about so many people in pain. You know, the statistic about in the world, it's one in four mm-hmm. are suffering with pain, chronic Chronic pain, pain. yeah. Chronic pain. Debilitating chronic pain. And you said in the United States, you think it's one in three. Mm-hmm. And I believe it based on conversations with people. Yeah. So I hope this conversation at least gives some hope and that people will seek information on this P&E because I think it's very valuable. I'm going to continue to learn about it in any way I can because, again, we're all going to be faced like this. And I think the more we can learn, the more we're willing to have a path and receptive to getting old mm-hmm. and aging. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, for me, it's my, my goal now as I'm on the other side of this diagnosis is how am I going to walk through this walk so that I age the way I want to age? Yeah. Not the way the world wants me to age. Right. The way I want to age. So again, thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you. All right, take care. Thanks. I look forward to this ride and encourage you to come along. Hold on. Hold on.